When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from Dubai, I'm Eleni Jalkas in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. Victory Parade Taliban fighters show off seized U.S. military vehicles. The U.K. and Japan are the latest countries to discuss relations with the Taliban as President Biden remains defiant over the withdrawal. And China's $3 trillion tech clampdown, the global investors are not deterred. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Taliban is holding a victory parade in Kandahar province and showing off some of the U.S. weapons they captured during the takeover of Afghanistan. This video was posted to social media. It hasn't been independently verified by CNN. Now, as the group tries to form a new government, Japan says it's willing to work with them to help people who want to leave Afghanistan. The U.K. is also holding talks with the Taliban in Qatar. Meanwhile, a Taliban commando rails against the U.S. Take a listen. We will kill the Americans, ten times more than that. The Islamic Emirate has now been established in Afghanistan, and there will be no chaos at all after that. We will sacrifice our heads to defend our nation. Afghans who are trying to leave their homeland are continuing to flock to the Pakistani border. Nick Robertson is live in Islamabad, Pakistan, with the latest. Nick, look, the message is clear. The Taliban clearly want uh, to work with the U.S. in some form. And, of course, Western nations are trying to figure out what that diplomatic relation is going to be now uh, in the next few weeks. In the meantime, people are desperately still trying to get out. There is uh, a a large number of people who didn't make it out on those uh, evacuation flights out of Kabul. So there is still uh, a lot of fear among some people that they want to leave, uh, that they don't know if they're going to be secure in the future, particularly those people who who had roles in the military or roles in the Afghan military, and particularly those who were assisting uh, US and other NATO forces. So that really still exists. In terms of Pakistan, there hasn't been a high influx of refugees here. The border is being controlled. Uh, Only Afghans who have uh, the proper permissions and papers to come into Pakistan are being allowed in. The country is hosting a relatively small number of what it calls um, evacuees uh, and on a temporary basis. Pakistan really feels that it has been as generous as it can be, particularly in the past uh, towards hosting refugees. But I I think a lot of focus, if you sort of look politically and diplomatically, and I think this was sort of partly a, a part of what President Biden was saying yesterday, that 
you know, the diplomacy that he thinks he can affect with the Taliban right now is something that will sort of happen regionally, that the that, that, that United States voice will be alongside that of others in the region. And Pakistan here clearly has, uh, you know, a lot in the game, if you will, uh, over what happens in Afghanistan instability, a, a broken economy, that's going to be bad for them. Um, so the attention at the moment here is really focused on the Taliban and forming that government that you're talking about. The Taliban themselves seem to be focusing their attention internally on the Panjshir Valley, the sort of last holdout of resistance against their rule. And they've said uh, very recently that they don't believe that the talks that they were having with the people there are going to work out. Uh, and it's a, it's a very straightforward message now to those people. Essentially, it's time to surrender. It's time to accept that you can live in a country with the Taliban rule. Yeah, Nick, I mean, what's also fascinating here, and you talk about the economy, because if the Taliban can get the, the um, equation right when it comes to sorting out the economy, that's one step closer to being legitimate and to governing and then people wanting to stay within Afghanistan. The question is, can they get that right when, you know, they've been blocked of aid and IMF funds, for example? Well, um, President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, yesterday told CNN that, look, the Biden administration is not going to use humanitarian aid that needs to go to the people of Afghanistan as a bargaining chip with uh, the Taliban. The Taliban's difficulty, however, is that when it comes to dealing with international financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund that, that lends money to poorer countries like Afghanistan, um, the IMF uh, expects those countries to pay interest. The Taliban, because of their strict interpretation of Islamic law or Sharia law, they would refuse to pay so far. That's been their track record. Refuse to pay, refuse to be obligated by interest. That's against their principles and against their understandings of how to interpret the laws with which they say they're going to govern the country. So you can already see a conundrum there. How can the Taliban integrate economically with the rest of the world and get access to monies that they're going to need that have supported previous governments inside Afghanistan? How can they hope to do that? Um, you you know, if they if they refuse to accept the money. So these are, you know, that's just one tiny fragment of, of how the economic picture will look going forward. Nick, thank you very much. That was Nick Robertson uh, in Islamabad. Now, the U.S. president has vigorously defended his decision to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan. He rejected criticism of the chaotic exit and said the U.S. no longer had a clear purpose in Afghanistan. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war, and I was not extending a forever exit. John uh, Harwood joins us now. John, there was one security analyst who said to me, you know, the U.S. might be done with Afghanistan, but Afghanistan might not be done with the U.S. Hearing what the White House has to say and listening to Biden yesterday, he's still just justifying the entire process. He is. And Joe Biden is convinced that 
he is right about the decision to leave, not only that he's right now, but that he's been right for 10 years and that his critics are wrong. He also believes that his critics are wrong to call the withdrawal botched. Uh, his view is that the source of the chaos that we saw on television screens was the collapse of the Afghan government and security forces and that anything that could have been done uh, earlier to uh, accommodate that, if you envision that happening, would have only accelerated the collapse. Uh, but you're right, Afghanistan is not done with the United States. There's a lot of work to do and there's a lot that could still go wrong for the president. You've got uh, 100 to 200 Americans who perhaps belatedly have decided that they want to leave the country. He's committed to bringing them out and he said he's going to do it not through military means because the troops are gone, but through diplomatic means and that's a test of his administration to see if they can make that work, if they can uh, leverage uh, the uh, whatever uh, things they hold over the Taliban, including financially, as you were just discussing with Nick Robertson, uh, uh, to uh, get those uh, people out. Secondly, uh, the Taliban, of course, have a history of uh, medieval brutality. If they uh, do not uh, alter their behavior to ingratiate themselves with the international community and revert to that behavior, and that becomes uh, uh, something that is known in the Western world, that's seen on television screens, that's going to redound against uh, President Biden. That's con the heat that comes with deciding to uh, leave a country and say it's not in our interest to determine who governs the country. Welcome back to First Move, and we're a few minutes away before the start of trade in New York. It's also the first of September, so let's take a look to see how markets are doing right now. And global stocks are mostly higher. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq are set to open in record territory. Europe is trading mostly higher as well, with French stocks in the lead. Asian markets advanced despite new signs that the Chinese economy is slowing. A private survey shows factory activity contracting last month for the first time in over a year. Now, August was another rough month for investors in many Chinese tech stocks. Alibaba shares fell more than 14% in New York trading. Ride-hailing app Didi plunged more than 20%. Online tutoring firm TLA TAL, pardon me, education fell sharply as well. Now, the biggest Chinese tech names have lost some $3 trillion in market value since China launched its ongoing regulatory crackdown. And the pain may not be over just yet, as Christy Liu Stout reports. Meituan Dianping, a sector under siege. China's leading tech players, from major e-commerce platforms and ride-hailing companies to education tech groups, all have been targeted by Beijing's crackdown on private enterprise. Casualties include some of China's leading tech firms, Alibaba, ByteDance, Didi, Meituan, New Oriental Education, Pinduoduo, Tencent, and the list goes on. Companies have been slapped with fines, banned from app stores, in order to overhaul their business, prompting sharp falls for listed Chinese tech firms and stoking fear about the future. But observers say the end goal of Beijing's bid for control is not about creating chaos. It's all part of a top-down plan. Why is this happening? This isn't simply a power play by Beijing to crush these upstarts, these billionaires, these entrepreneurs. A lot of this crackdown is driven by a political campaigns like Common Prosperity. Common prosperity is the prosperity of all the people, says Chinese President Xi Jinping, as he pledges to redistribute wealth in China. 
Analysts say the crackdown is out to fix social ills like income inequality and hyper-competition. The government believes that these companies are mostly in the business of monetizing status anxiety, in which you have the salespeople from these online education firms really preying on the middle-class dreams of sending the kids to uh, the best universities. There's another force behind the takedown, redirecting the sector toward hard tech like semiconductors and AI. The Chinese government wants to have technological supremacy. That means setting global standards, shaping future uh, technologies, especially in the critical and high-tech areas, creating general-purpose technologies that will influence economies all around the world. That's one reason why influential investors still see opportunity. BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, is reported as saying investors should as much as triple their allocations in Chinese assets. In which a lot of while billionaire hedge fund founder Ray Dalio says investors should keep their faith in China, writing, I urge you to not misinterpret these sorts of moves as reversals of the trends that have existed for the last several decades and let that scare you away. But as China's sweeping tech crackdown continues, could this crackdown kill China's entrepreneurial spirit? That's something of considerable debate. A lot of the regulatory crackdown has focused on 10 to 20 of China's best and brightest entrepreneurs. So these are include the founders of uh, Beituan, uh, Alibaba, uh, Pinduoduo. But I think for the broader masses of entrepreneurs, this is not so much uh, bothering them. Especially in the new generation, these eager young minds are very motivated by China's large market. They see lots of opportunities. A sector under siege is also being remade to serve the people and their master planners. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Chinese President Xi Jinping's thoughts on the economy and society are sure to be hot topics of conversation in China's schools this autumn. Beginning today, millions of Chinese students are being given mandatory lessons on Xi's philosophy. Stephen Jiang reports from Beijing. The full name for this new class is quite a mouthful. Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. Now, this, of course, is a set of policies and ideas derived from speeches and writings by the Chinese president, the country's most powerful leader in decades. Xi Jinping thought has already been enshrined into ruling communist parties and the country's constitutions, and now it's become part of a mandatory national curriculum. The education ministry has made clear studying Xi Jinping thought is the primary political task, not only for the Communist Party, but also for the entire nation. That's why they say they are now arming the students' minds with this philosophy to cultivate successors to the communist cause. And they have also uh, emphasized that this is going to be a continuous process, starting from elementary schools, but going all the way to colleges and the universities. Now, for many, of course, this is yet another unmistakable sign that the Communist Party under Xi Jinping is now trying to play a dominant role in every aspect of Chinese society, not just in politics and military, but also in businesses, uh, cultural institutions, and especially in schools, as uh, the authorities are increasingly focused on indoctrinating and shaping the minds of the younger generations at a time when geopolitical tensions continue to grow between China and the West, especially the United States. Now, ironically, the government has recently banned after-school private tutoring to relieve students' burden. But obviously, they don't see uh, this new mandatory class as a burden for millions of schoolchildren around China. 
Stephen Zhang, CNN, Beijing. Well, you're watching First Move. The market open is up next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on this first trading day of September. We have mostly green arrows in early trading with the S&P and the Nasdaq trading near record highs. The S&P is coming off its seventh straight winning month as investors cheer continued strong profits and signs that the federal policy will remain market friendly for some time to come. The first big market test of the month comes on Friday when the U.S. releases its latest read on jobs. A bit of caution on the employment front today, however. New numbers show private sector firms adding 374,000 jobs in August, well below the estimates, and uh, they're creating a bit of concern. In the meantime, British lawmakers are questioning Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab right now on the Afghanistan mission. He was asked why the UK did not plan to take on the responsibility of evacuating people out of Afghanistan once the US announced it would pull out. Honest with you, Alicia, I don't think there was any viable uh, alternative coalition once the US decision had been taken. And again, I think... Uh, there needs to be some reality about that in the public discourse because it was clear to me uh, there were not going to be anyone that could backfill for the capacity that the US provided. And the US were unlikely to shift the, the parameters beyond a few months. And that is exactly what happened. All right, so many questions about what went wrong. We've got Melissa Bell listening into um, what was going on uh, by British lawmakers. What is the latest, Melissa? Well, Eleni, I think the least that can be said about the Foreign Affairs Select Committee members is that they had questions, and a lot of them. Of course, this will continue now for some time more. Dominic Robb, really on the defensive there, you heard in that little snippet that we just played for you, that central point that once the American decision had been uh, made to leave with very little coordination with its NATO allies, we now know it was very difficult for the last remaining other combat troops, the British, not to leave as well. But this is a foreign secretary under a great deal of pressure. Remember that earlier this month he'd come in for criticism for not coming back from his holiday as Kabul looks set to fall. Uh, the British policy now in terms of the way uh, it was it carried out its evacuation, the question that he simply couldn't answer of how many Afghan nationals uh, that could be helped under the program to help those who've helped the British forces uh, might be eligible for entry to the United Kingdom over the coming months and years. Answer he couldn't give simply because he said the vetting processes took longer than that. And then I think what's likely to come before the end of this session, Eleni, is a more fundamental question about what this means for the United Kingdom going forward, post-Brexit and post this catastrophic departure from Afghanistan, as uncoordinated as it was with the United States, and that speech by Joe Biden last night, making it so clear that it is towards domestic challenges that he intends to turn. Where does that leave British foreign policy? Where does it leave the United Kingdom? And is it going to be as isolated as it now seems going forward, Eleni? Melissa, thank you very much for that update. Melissa Bell. All right, evacuating so many people out of Afghanistan in such a short time was a gargantuan effort, and it wouldn't have been possible without civilian help. For only the third time ever, the Civil Reserve Air Fleet was activated by the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Selected commercial carriers are contractually obliged to help with evacuations in emergencies when the needs exceed the military capabilities. 24 carriers are part of the scheme. Eastern Airlines is one of them. The company helped transport evacuees from U.S. bases in Qatar and Germany to their final destinations. Joining us now is the CEO and President of Eastern 
Airlines, Steve Harfst. He's at the headquarters outside of Philadelphia. Steve, I was looking at the photographs of uh, you welcoming some of the evacuees upon landing, and I, I know this flight and these flights must be so different to what you normally do. So tell me about how you felt when you received the call when uh, the Department of Defense activated the uh, reserve fleet. Yeah, thank you, Laney. And you're right, it is a a significant uh, humanitarian effort. Eastern Airlines has been a member of the Civil Air Reserve Fleet since June of last year. We we actually volunteered our entire capacity, flight crews, pilots, flight attendants, and airplanes before the Stage 1 activation. And when it was actually activated, uh, we'd already had two airplanes in the air returning evacuees home. It's a, an amazing effort, and our pilots and flight attendants have done an amazing job taking care of those people and bringing them home safely uh, to freedom, really. And how long are you going to continue these efforts working side by side with uh, the U.S. government? Sure. We've transported a little over 1,500 evacuees so far, and we'll continue to support the effort until everyone's brought here to the United States. The uh, Department of Defense has said that mission is going to last here for the next couple of weeks, and as long as it takes, we'll continue to support that effort. Um, in terms of logistics and uh, the process, um, has it been a difficult one to try and figure out routes? I mean, I know that you weren't involved in Kabul, but you're involved in, in, the, in Germany and in Qatar as well. Tell me about what logistics go into this. Are you seeing this just as a normal route? No, it's not normal by any means. It's been very challenging. And our ground staff, our pilots, our flight attendants, the team here in Philly that's been supporting the the planning and the logistical efforts of making sure everybody's been in position has been a real monumental task. The, no one was really prepared to uh, support this kind of an operation. And you've seen reports of the challenges that the military has faced in processing the evacuees at the staging locations in the Middle East and Europe, and then even deplaning them here in, on in America on U.S. soil. So our team has really done a phenomenal job. Multiple trips to Walmart back and forth to make sure that the airplanes were supplied to take care of these people that are really you know, leaving their homes with nothing and coming halfway around the world to freedom. Yeah. Yeah, Steve, take me through some of those challenges. You're saying multiple trips to Walmart. Um, at what point did you mm-hmm. come in and intervene? Because it yeah. sounds like more than just offering a flight home, you know? It's yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It was really the first flight. Once we really realized the gravity of the situation and the fact that these people, many of which have never seen the inside of an airplane, let alone, you know, the wow. standards that we take for granted here in the United States. So um, our team responded really quickly with everything from diapers to sanitary wipes to uh, nutrition bars, anything we could do, blankets, towels, pillows, anything we could do to help make that journey more comfortable. You mentioned the photos here in Philadelphia, we were fortunate to have two of these, two of our airplanes uh, fly into Philadelphia. So I was able to greet our flights as they arrived and to see the look of joy on the faces of the people, especially the young children, as they stepped onto American soil for the first time was really moving. And talking with our flight crews after they got off the airplane, it's really been an amazing job what they've done taking care of these people and bringing them home to freedom. Um, Steve, yeah, it's very heartwarming um, to see these photographs uh, and I'm sure very emotive. And as you say, you're still going to be involved for the next few weeks or until you're needed. 
Um, but pivoting now to what you're doing at the moment with Eastern Airlines, yeah. you're looking at the cargo space at the moment. It's been an important part of, you know, countering some of the demand destruction that you've seen through sort of the normal uh, passenger air travel space. How is this going to alter your business model uh, down the line? And do you think it's going to be able to plug the hole that you've seen because just people are not flying as much because of the uh, pandemic? Yeah, you know, you're right. That's a great question. This this is part of our business strategy that, that we've been executing even before uh, the pandemic, but certainly the reaction to the uh, pandemic and the depression of international uh, travel, the number of airplanes that have been parked on the ground has had a huge impact on cargo capacity because much of the cargo capacity carried around the world globally had been carried in the belly of passenger airplanes. So with all that lift taken out of the markets really had a significant impact on the cargo market. And what's really interesting about what's happening today is as the air transportation system around the world has retracted and that capacity has come out of the market, you and I and households around the world are continuing to buy online and expecting all our goods to come to our front door the next day. So in the midst of reduction in capacity in the marketplace around the world, demand is increased and is increasing at, a, at an accelerated rate. So we're really excited about the opportunity to bring what we see as a real innovative uh, product to the market quickly and help fill a small piece of that, that void in the market. So very quickly, you've bought a, a 35B777 aircraft um, and you're you know, going from passenger to freighter conversion. It's the first time a company has been doing that with the B777. Um, I wonder about margins and um, whether you think there's going to be so much demand down the line that this has sort of become such a big part of your business model now. What percentage of the company is it going to account for? Sure. Well, it'll grow over time without question. We're still really bullish on our passenger segment of our business uh, we think we've got a real competitive advantage there. Uh, at the end of the day, Eleni, the, op- the ability to have a low cost of ownership asset and to be able to be a low cost producer in the marketplace, we think is a real strong yeah. position to be. So we think in markets like we are in today, where there's a pretty huge disparity between supply and demand, yeah. we can create outside margins. But once that equilibrium is come, comes back in a couple years, we think we're still going to be in a real, yeah. real strong position. Steve, thank you very much. Good luck with the rest of the evacuations Mm -hmm. and the routes. Much appreciated for your time. Well, that's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jokos. Thanks so very much for watching. Marketplace Asia is up next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.